Please continue to be in prayer for Elder Roger Skibbenis uh, and, the re- and the rest of his family. <clears throat> Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We have a lot to pray about as a church family, a lot of people to hold up in prayer before you. We thank you that you are our great high priest, that you mediate between us and the and most holy God. And because of that, because your death and resurrection tore the veil in two and kicked open the door to heaven, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Not because of anything within us or our own pride, but only based on you and what you have accomplished for us. We thank you that your word reveals to us the truth that you created us, you knit us together in the darkness of our mother's womb. You are with us every step of the way through our life. If you have chosen us to put our faith in you, you call us in your timing and under your circumstances to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we do that, we have the full faith and assurance of knowing that we will be with you when we take our last breath on earth or if you return before that. But either way, we have the hope and peace of an eternity with you. That is an invaluable, indescribable, immeasurable treasure that you have given to us as as true children of God. We thank you for all the many promises that you give to us in your word. All the truths that you teach us about who you are, what your relationship is to man, and what your plan of salvation is. There is only one way, and his name is Jesus. So, Lord, we come before you this morning, opening your word once again. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are multiple news stories out there over the years that report on the thefts of invaluable artwork and jewelry and documents or other items. Most happen under cover of night or are inside jobs, but one real and true news story uh, out of Poland reports an art theft that took place over 20 years ago in the year 2000, where the thief stole a priceless painting from an art museum in broad daylight right from under the noses of museum staff. In April of 2000, a young man had faxed the museum Yes, that is a word, Jacoby. Uh, (laughs) Asking them for permission to be in the art gallery and to make a sketch of a particular painting in order to base his own interpretation on it and be accepted into a certain art association. The museum agreed, and so this young man would visit the museum often for hours at a time, making a detailed sketch of this painting. What no one took into account, however, was that the only painting by famous artist Claude Monet that resided in Poland hung on the wall opposite the painting this young man was sketching. 
As the young man sketched, he made the observation that the attendant on duty of that gallery would always wear high heels, making her approach recognizable. Every day, this young man would show up to the museum under the guise of sketching. He would use a sharp tool to cut a few centimeters of this Monet painting out of its frame. As he heard her high heels approaching, he would jump back to resuming his sketching. After several rounds of this, he had managed to cut out the entire painting and replace it with a copy he had prepared and walked right out of the museum with the painting rolled up under his jacket, at the time worth 7 million euro or roughly 7.7 million US dollars today. When that same attendant made the rounds sometime later, she was horrified to find what was supposed to be the Monet painting peeled away from its frame and having some of its coloring off. She could tell the color was off. She reported it to her superior, who immediately recognized that what, that what was there was a fake and an investigation by police was launched. However, the only evidence they had was some fingerprints left on the frame, none of which matched anything in the database. The theft went unsolved for 10 years until the lead investigator who would check the found fingerprints against the database every so often, just in the off chance they would register, hit a match 10 years later. The thief, who hadn't done anything with the painting, hadn't sold it, hadn't done anything with it that whole time, was arrested for not paying alimony and threatening a security guard at a store and had fingerprints taken. He was arrested shortly after and was said to have a face of relief come across his face that it was all over. He was plagued with such guilt all these 10 years and regret, even coming very close to turning himself in at one point. Even though the crime hadn't gone unnoticed for very long, it was probably only a few minutes, it went unnoticed for a short period of time because there was a copy, albeit crude, in its place. In the same way, we'll see in our passage this morning how Jesus wants his followers to, although in an imperfect way, copy him and what he chose to uphold as important in portraying himself. Like I mentioned before our, our scripture reading, this is the third and last portion of this event of Jesus washing his disciples' feet as recorded in the Gospel of John. Two weeks ago, we looked at the ultimate humility Jesus showed, even as the Son of God and King of the universe, and that he lowered himself to the status of a household servant and then went so far as to do what was only reserved for the household servant to do, which is washing feet. This was in direct contrast to the self-promoting pride of both Satan, who had placed the idea of betraying Jesus in Judas Iscariot's heart and mind, and of the rest of us, fallen humanity. Last week, we looked at Jesus using this whole experience as a teaching moment about spiritual cleansing from sin. There are two aspects of Jesus spiritually cleansing us. The first one, illustrated by the image of taking a bath, is the full and whole and full washing from sin we receive from him. 
when we come to him in repentance and taking him as the savior from that sin and the king over the rest of our lives. That's what gifts us legal justification from sin and therefore entrance into heaven. The second aspect is the ongoing washing from sin, illustrated by the image of daily foot washing. When we come to Jesus as our advocating high priest before the throne of most holy God the Father and confess our sins to him. We saw how the Apostle John writes in 1 John that God's word promises us that he is then faithful and righteous to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from them. Now, after all of that has taken place, we come to Jesus' final teaching uh, on what he's physically done through washing all of the disciples' feet. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 12. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 13 and verse 12, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. This is what we read. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Now, firstly, we read that Jesus reclined at the table. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the evidence for this meal that John records in these chapters, supporting that this is one and the same as the last Passover meal Jesus observes with his disciples before his crucifixion. This verse that we just read is one of those pieces of evidence. It was really only at very special banquet meals, like the Passover meal, that those seated on the floor around the table would then recline at the table during it. So Jesus finishes up washing the disciples' feet and then puts back on his outer garments and takes his place at the table again, reclining at it. Then he turns the focus onto the disciples. And that's how we see the movement of this passage. It starts with Jesus, with everything as everything else starts with Jesus. Then it moves to a personal exchange between Jesus and one person, Simon Peter. Then it moves outward from there to the entire group of his disciples. We see this throughout the, the New Testament as to how God designed his gospel message to spread throughout the world. It started with Jesus, then spread to him calling his disciples individually to follow him, which in turn moved towards Jesus' public ministry to crowds. We see it with Jesus' conversation with one woman in Samaria, then it moving to the whole village. And we see it in the book of Acts, how Jesus commissioned his disciples to start with Jerusalem, then move outwards to Judea and Samaria, and then move outwards from there to the whole rest of the world. Jesus starts out this teaching that rounds out this section with a rhetorical question, do you know what I've done to you? The obvious answer is, you washed our feet. What kind of question is that? But obviously there was more to it than that, and the more to it to the, uh, is what Jesus' point is in directing their attention to thinking about what he had just done. Jesus then follows that question up with verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
At the very least, the disciples all recognize that their place in relation to Jesus is that of a teacher and rabbi and disciple relationship. They gave up their livelihoods in order to follow him. As disciples, they are to emulate what they are taught by their master and teacher. By Jesus asking this question in verse 12 to direct the disciples' attention inward towards themselves and then making the statement in verse 13 as to who they are in relation to him, he's solidifying that the teaching he's about to give them, they must follow as disciples of him, as their master, teacher, and Lord. Now that he's reminded his disciples of their place in following him and solidified that relationship in their minds, he comes to the teaching they are to follow and copy him in. Verses 14 through 15. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. If Jesus, as the one in the higher position over them, washed their feet, then none of them should balk at washing the feet of one of their fellow peers. They had no right to think that that act, pretty much the lowest form of service a servant could do for the one they served at the time, was below them and off limits. That mentality is the foundation for what Jesus is driving at with this teaching moment. The emphasis is on what the mentality of the disciples should always be. That of humility and serving one another self-sacrificially, just as Jesus just illustrated to them. That's why Jesus uses the word example in verse 15. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the point of this passage is not to establish foot washing as a regular ordinance and institution of the church. The Lord's Supper most certainly is, and the heart and mindset behind foot washing most certainly is, but the actual act of literal foot washing is not. The overall point of Jesus' message here is a continual heart and mindset of self-sacrificial and humble service among each other as disciples of Jesus. The only institutions we see carried on by the early church in the New Testament, which carry through to today, are that of observing the Lord's Supper, which we do on the first Sunday of each month, and of, by, and of baptism by immersion in water. Those are the only two institutions that carry through into the church today. While the act of foot washing is not a biblically taught regular practice by the church, the mentality behind it is what we must have as a Holy Spirit-driven focus with the way we live our lives. Jesus' overall point of this teaching is what the mindset of what the disciples must be from that point forward. And therefore, what the mindset of Jesus' disciples up through now must be. We see this teaching continue throughout the rest of the New Testament. See, the natural mindset of us as fallen humans, as we've talked about lately, is what? 
It's pride. That is our default. That is our natural uh, thing we, we always come to. That's below me, right? I'm not going to do that for that person. I'm going to look out for myself and myself alone. But that's the complete opposite of what Jesus has called us to as his disciples. It's not something that we naturally come to. It's not something we naturally default to. It's something that the Holy Spirit breaks us of and changes in us over the years of the rest of us, well, rest of the years of us walking with God. Why? Why is that something the Holy Spirit does in our minds and our hearts? Why does Jesus call us as his disciples to be this way? Firstly, it's because of who he is. And if we're to be his disciples, then we must be following him in every way, including this mentality of humility that permeates everything we are, everything we say, and everything we do. Secondly, because it's who he is, if we follow him in this way, we show to an unbelieving, fallen, sinful, broken, and dark world that we're different. And how we're different. Which leads to us telling them why we're different. A life of humility and in serving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In that humble service, because we follow Jesus, is radically different from all the rest of the world's pursuits. Jesus knows that what he's calling his disciples to be and live, and all of his disciples, including us today, is not what we naturally gravitate towards. So he, again, brings out the truth of who he is in comparison with his disciples. Verse uh, 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Again, this is to point out, hey, none of you should balk at this. Nobody, none of you should be making faces back at me right now. As my servants, you're not somehow greater than I am, are you? That being the rhetorical question, the obvious answer is obviously not. Not one of us is greater than Jesus, our Lord and Master. So Jesus is saying, just as I served you, in humility, you must follow my example towards each other. Are there any exceptions when it comes to the church? No, not at all. It doesn't matter if the brother or sister is annoying. Doesn't matter if he or she rubs you the wrong way, backstabs you, or they're difficult to be around. None of that matters. Think about it. Jesus' disciples were annoying, rubbed him the wrong way, backstabbed him, and at times were difficult to be around. Yet Jesus washed all of their feet, including Judas Iscariot's. His example was not just an example for us to follow in serving one another. 
but it was an example for us to follow in serving all of one another. Paul writes to the churches scattered throughout Galatia, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. This serving one another through love is following Jesus' example, by following Jesus' example, is furthered in Philippians chapter 2. We already referenced Philippians 2 about Jesus' humility, about how he did not consider equality with God the Father something to selfishly exploit, but emptied himself of his heavenly position to humble himself to the likeness and position of humankind, even the lowest position of humankind, that of a bond servant. And we see that illustrated in our passage that we've been going through over the past few weeks. But Paul's overall point in bringing up Jesus' humility is just a reiteration of Jesus' point in our passage this morning. In bringing up Jesus' humility, it was to point out to us how we should be and live and act. This is what the overall passage in Philippians 2 says. Do nothing from selfishness, pride, or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or selfishly exploited, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just as Jesus humbled himself in the most radical way possible for a deity to do, we are to have that same attitude within ourselves, doing nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but looking out for the interests of others and considering one another as more important than ourselves in all humility. This should permeate everything we are, everything we say to one another, and every act towards one another. This way of life is not just to uphold and encourage and push one another to deeper and deeper levels of faith growth. It's not just to show how we're radically different from this world. It's ultimately to follow and serve Jesus. And when we follow and serve Jesus with all of our hearts, there is blessing that goes along with it. Verse 17. And if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Obviously, Jesus did not say this to mean that we should live this way so that we're blessed. 
For Paul also wrote in his reiteration that we're not to do anything out of selfishness or empty conceit, right? We just read that. But again, along with everything we do to love and serve Jesus, there is blessing that just supernaturally, I was going to say naturally, but it supernaturally goes along with it. God's word tells us that he takes care of his children. And that's a life of blessing in and of itself. And ultimately, after Jesus raptures us and we stand before him, a life of humble service in his name will be the difference between overwhelming rewards straight from the hand of Jesus himself or the realization that we just escaped the fires of hell by the skin of our teeth. You can read more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So again, while not our focus... Never underestimate what you're building up for yourself as treasures in heaven by living this life Jesus has called each and every one of us to in humbly serving one another. Next, Jesus turns to the, the, to the disciples sitting around the table with him that evening, the same evening on which he was betrayed, and says this, verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. As we've been talking about lately, Jesus knows full well that one of his disciples that he chose would very soon betray him. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Jesus did this on purpose to fulfill Psalm 41.9, which he quotes here in verse 18. Psalm 41.9 says this, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, wait my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. What this is, is a fulfillment of what is recorded in 2 Samuel 16 and 17, when King David's close friend Ahithophel betrays him. In fact, Ahithophel used to be a close dinner friend of David's, sharing meals with him. Ahithophel, who had bread with David in a close relationship, relationship, lifted up his heel of betrayal towards David and ended up hanging himself because of what he did. Anyone see the clear connection between what happened there and what happens here? All I'm going to do is substitute names, but say exactly what I just said. Instead of Ahithophel, Judas Iscariot, who had bread with Jesus in a close relationship, lifted up his heel of betrayal towards Jesus and ended up hanging himself because of what he did. Anyone else see the clear connection with the word heel, both in Psalm 41 and what Jesus references Judas will do in betraying him too? Ultimately, Jesus knows it's Satan who is moving in Judas to do what he will uh, about to do and knows that it's this movement in this spiritual war that's been raging for thousands of years. We talked more about that spiritual war in connection with humanity a couple of weeks ago. In the first act of using humanity to betray God and God cursing Satan and humanity because of it, God also revealed that there was already in place 
even at the time of this curse, a deliverer. There was already a deliverer in place. Genesis 3.15 prophesies, And I will make enemies of you, this is the curse towards Satan and the woman, and because of, and of your offspring and her descendant, he shall bruise you on the head, or he shall crush you on the head, is a better rendition of that word, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Even though Satan would think, with the bruise, that he had victory over Jesus by way of using Judas Iscariot and evil men, he really only bruised the heel of this deliverer. He did not remain dead forever. And Jesus, as the deliverer, would ultimately crush the head of and power of Satan. See, to anyone paying attention, Jesus is outright revealing, step by step, what Judas will do in ultimate fulfillment of Scripture. And that's exactly what Jesus references next in verse 19. From now on, I am telling you, before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. The reason I paused there is he does not exist in the Greek language there. It is just simply I am. In other words, Jesus says, just to further prove to you, my closest companions, that I am I am and God, from now on, I will reveal certain details about what's going to happen. And you'll see that they will happen exactly the way I prophesy they will happen. And that's exactly what happens. For us today, there are many details revealed in God's word about Jesus rescuing his church from this dark and evil world, what the world will be like in the end days, and what will happen in the end times events that will happen following the rapture. Most of it is in symbolic form, but if we seek God and study his word, we can get a pretty accurate idea of all of these events and what surrounds them. You've heard me say this time and time again, but the details of what God's word reveals about the state of the world just before Jesus comes back are pointing that it's going to be soon. And don't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that the world keeps getting more and more radically and illogically evil. We shouldn't be surprised that the world's viewpoint has completely turned upside down and the truths of biblical Christianity are now seen as public enemy number one. We shouldn't be surprised that certain ideas that used to be seen as far-fetched are being normalized to be perfectly good explanations of why millions of people, including young children and babies still in the womb, suddenly disappear off the face of the earth all at once. We shouldn't be surprised that the general mindset of the world is moving towards the one world government of the Antichrist. We shouldn't be surprised about any of these things because just as Jesus reveals in verse 19, he's revealed that these things would happen in the last days. We're not to look at what is going on in the world today with fear, but rather fascination and excitement 
Why? Because it just means that Jesus is coming back for us soon. It's also further motivation for us to keep telling others about Jesus because we have no idea when Jesus will rapture us and we're no longer around to tell them anymore. Someone I was talking with recently had this idea that I think is a very good idea. This person said that they're thinking of writing a letter and leaving it with a magnet up on their fridge. For any loved ones left behind in the rapture who then go to their home to see if anything happened to them, to find and read about exactly why they're gone and to not believe any of the host of explanations and excuses being offered as to why they're gone. You can do that now. You're still around. Sort of a last-ditch gospel witness as at that point, the world rages in fire, explosions, hundred-car pile-up crashes, planes falling out of the sky, endless looting, people killing one another out of fear, thoroughly empty grocery stores, and just plain indescribable chaos. No wonder it will be out of that world of indescribable chaos that a world leader will emerge promising peace, answers, and rebuilding of society, and the whole world will throw themselves at him with no reservation. Lastly, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. As referenced by one biblical scholar, this is Jesus' first commission to his disciples during this last Passover meal with them. He will be sending them out into a world that will not understand them, that will hate them, that will kill them for their message about Jesus. But they can rest assured in remembering that they were representing Jesus as he was the representative of the Father. If you think about it, this was the last time of quiet and focused teaching Jesus was giving his disciples before it all goes down. Once they left the upper room after this meal, it was only a matter of time until the guards with torches and swords arrived to arrest Jesus and these very same disciples go scattering off into the night. Jesus will build on this and reveal more and teach more to his disciples following this event of foot washing. But this was Jesus' first commissioning of them here during this meal that they would be the ones to carry out the mission. He would reveal that they wouldn't be alone and that they'd have the Holy Spirit with them to do it. But the message of Jesus' death, resurrection, salvation, and return would be left to them to carry forth into the rest of the world. In the same way, it doesn't take very much. And we can see what direction the world is very quickly hurtling towards. Cherry and I were just talking about this this past week, that the things we're seeing becoming 
mainstream and becoming normalized in our culture are things that weren't that way just one or two years ago. The blatant and unmasked slaughter of babies in the womb and political support of it, the New Jersey law that allows for the murder of a child all the way up to the very second before he or she is born, was just passed within the past couple of years. We also see the transgender movement targeting our kids to sterilize them, destroy them, and lead them to kill themselves. We see the amount of unabashed abductions of women and children and sex trafficking happening and people actually denouncing a film that merely seeks to reveal how far reaching and truly deeply embedded sex trafficking really is in our society and around the world. We see the normalization of pedophilia happening right before our eyes, right now. It's being pushed and normalized. The chemical and pharmaceutically induced mental and psychological instability of the general populace to do all kinds of horrific things to themselves and to each other. The inexplicable amount of pornography that is twisting minds and literally changing the brain shape and activity of people that's going hand in hand with the unprecedented sexual abuse of and perversion towards innocent children. We're seeing the obvious and in-your-face demonic activity and manifestations, an amount of people delving into the demonic realm with satanic rituals, even beyond what we already had with seances, Ouija boards, palm and tarot card readings, horoscopes, and people thinking they're communicating with the dead, but really they're just communicating with demons. And this is beyond thousands of years of people doing horrific things to each other and a whole slew of other things. This world is truly evil, especially now. I want to be very clear about that. And yet, until Jesus rescues us from it, we're still here. And he still has work for us to do. We're not to be fearful. He still has commissioned us as his disciples to bring the hope of salvation and truth found only in Jesus to this evil, dark, and hurting world. Let us show this world that we're radically different by our love and service towards one another and stand for the truth of God's word in God's definition of love. Jesus is coming back soon. That is our hope. And we don't have much more time to portray Jesus to this world. Now is not the time to be timid, to be fearful, or to be silent. Now is not the time. We've run out of time to do that, church. Now is no longer, the, there is no more time to be timid, fearful, or silent. Now is the time to be bold in the truth and love of Jesus. In the last recorded words we have of the Apostle Paul, as he knows he's about to be beheaded for his faith, 
a bold declaration of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. He writes to one of his sons in the faith who would be one to continue the gospel message and work of Jesus, a man named Timothy, words that we must continue to take to heart as we live out the gospel in this dark world. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. You feel fearful about this world? That's not from God. That's either from yourself or from the enemy. God has not given us a spirit of fear. What has God given to us? God has given to us the Holy Spirit, and that is the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So let's go forth into this dark world, knowing that Jesus is coming back, and he could come back at any moment, as we can see the darkness in this world, standing for the gospel and standing for the truth of God's word in God's love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is our foundation of truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray that we would remain firm and we would remain strong in faith in you and in your word. That we would not be tossed to and fro by what society wants us to think and, and believe and act on, but that we would remain firmly rooted in your word and display your word and portray your word through service and through your love. I pray that your Holy Spirit would embolden each one of us, not only here, but those who will be watching and listening to this later, to be the disciples you have called us to be, to take the gospel message into this dark world and to stand strong in the power and love and sound mind of the Holy Spirit. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.